Okay, first, I'm not going to talk about all the fine art, so I'm not going to talk about dance, and I'm not going to talk about music, because the paper is already over an hour, so I needed to cut something. Unfortunately, we have many people speaking about music. All right, so how do I define fine art? Well, I define it as something made by an animal or made in a certain fashion for the purpose of giving pleasure by its very perception. I'm sure you can tell that in place of saying fine art is something made with the express purpose of being beautiful, that I'm substituting Aquinas' definition of beauty, namely that which seeing pleases, albeit broadened to include sounds, because Aquinas doesn't mean to exclude music from the realm of the beautiful. He explicitly speaks about beautiful sounds. There's a reason, though, he gives a priority to the visual. So the other thing I'm going to be talking a lot about besides beauty, although they're related, is imitation, as we were talking about yesterday. And this is found in many works of fine art, but not all of them, because I include the decorative arts as part of fine art. Um, Aristotle, in a well-known passage in the parts of animals, acknowledges that they're ugly-looking animals and also disgusting-looking parts of animals whose beauty is not perceived by the senses, but only by the mind upon understanding the causes of these things, and especially their final causes. It doesn't seem, though, that this sort of beauty is pertinent to understanding fine art. Just any good ordering of means to ends in both human artifacts and in natural things does not render them beautiful for the, or do not, doesn't re render them pleasing to view simply for the sake of viewing them. Probably running through your minds is Aristotle's observation in the poetics that was mentioned yesterday that a picture of an ugly thing, if well executed, is beautiful. And Aquinas agrees. It seems then, though, that one deems such a picture beautiful to view because of the proportion of means to end. Here, though, the very end that the paint or whatever medium is applied in a specific way is none other that the final product be viewed with pleasure. When we perceive the accuracy of what's intended to be a likeness, it gives us pleasure. I note that to take such pleasure prima facie seems to be beyond the animal's ability, since it seems that a being would need to understand that the purpose of an ar artistic representation or what the purpose of an artistic re representation is in order to appreciate this form of beauty or ugliness. We'll set aside the sort of beauty for the time being and consider beauty that more immediately appeals to the senses and does not seem to require the judgment that seems to be required to appreciate representational art. So Aquinas denies that animals can appreciate beauty. So here's a passage I'm gonna quote a couple times from the Summa Contra Gentilis where he says, since pleasure perfects operation, as is manifest from Aristotle's ethics, the operation of everything whatsoever is ordered to this as to an end in which its own pleasure is affixed. The pleasure, however, of brute animals all refer to things that conserve the body. For they do not delight in sounds, odors, and appearances, except according as they're indicative of food or sex, in respect to which is every pleasure of theirs. Therefore, their entire operation is turned towards the conservation of the body as an end. Therefore, there's not some existence for them outside the body." End quote. So I don't think it's by chance that Aquinas mentions sounds, odors, and appearances, for with the exception of odor, they are the objects of the senses in which he asserts beauty is present. So here's another quote from um, the Summa. The beautiful is the same as the good, differing only in reason. For whereas the good is what all desire, and the notion of the good is that in which the appetite rests, the notion of the beautiful pertains to that in whose seeing or knowledge of which the appetite is set at rest. 
Whence also those senses that chiefly regard the beautiful are those which are above all knowing, namely sight and hearing serving reason. For we speak of beautiful visible things and beautiful sounds. However, in regard to the sensibles of the other senses, we do not use the name beauty, for we do not speak of beautiful flavors or odors. And thus it is manifest that beauty adds beyond goodness a certain order to the knowing power, so that good means what simply speaking pleases the appetite, whereas beauty means that of which the very apprehension pleases." End quote. So we desire to possess the good, but in regard to what's beautiful, we don't desire to possess it so much as to see it or hear it. We might accidentally desire to possess it, right, so that we can have access to seeing and hearing it, but by the same token, we might not want to possess it so that other people can see it and view it as well. So the fact that we desire to view rather than possess the beautiful, upon further reflection, explains why the senses of touch and taste are not associated with the perception of the beautiful, whereas sight and hearing are. They are too narrowly tied to the possession of a good thing and not merely to the sensing of it. So here's a really important passage from the De Veritati. Thus, therefore, the proper object of sensuality is the thing good or suitable to the one sensing it, which happens indeed in two ways. In one way, because it's suitable to the being itself of the one sensing, such as food and drink and other things of the sort. In another way, because it's suitable to the sense for the purpose of sensing, as a beautiful color is suitable to sight for the purpose of seeing, and moderate sound to hearing for the purpose of hearing, and so forth." End quote. So sensibles that are not suitable to the sense of touch are destructive of the being of the animal. For example, excessive heat or cold, excessive moisture or dryness will kill the animal. Similarly, insofar as taste is a form of touch, it is tied to recognizing what is nourishment from what is not. As for example, when you detect sand in your spinach or a pebble in your beans. In these senses, there's not a separate pleasure from feeling an appropriate texture and enjoying the food or location. There is no room for this thing is pleasurable or painful to perceive to be dissociated from this thing's good or bad for the organism. Aquinas notes a distinction, however, that applies to the sense of taste, quote, and above Aristotle maintained that taste is necessary for animals insofar as it's a certain feel for food. Here, however, he enumerates it among the senses that are not necessary insofar as it discriminates flavors which make food delightful or harsh tasting so that it's more readily accepted or refused. And what is said about taste can be understood about odor, for animals are attracted to food from afar by what has odor." End quote. So food does not have to taste or smell good in order to nourish, but when it does, the animal is more motivated to eat it. Flavors and smells that are pleasurable cannot as such destroy the animal, in contrast to the physical characteristics perceived by touch and taste insofar as it's a form of touch. The discrimination of flavors and odors represents an advance towards disinterested appreciation inasmuch as it opens up the possibility that something that is sensed as pleasant may in fact not coincide with what's good for the animal. Generally, it's true that pleasure is experienced when the animal does something conducive to survival and subsequently the desire for this pleasure motivates the animal to repeat the activity. Sometimes, though, it happens that animals motivated by pleasure will do something not conducive to survival. For example, um, horses will eat treats like apples to the point that they'll become colicky. 
The pleasure here, however, is still tied to obtaining an apparent good, not to disinterestedly admiring a thing. In other words, taste is discriminating that something is tasty food, as opposed to merely being food, is a step towards appreciation without consumption, although it's still bound up with consumption. The sense of smell in humans shows how a sense can be decoupled from survival and reproduction, as we not only enjoy the smell of foods, but also the smell of flowers, and thus also of perfumes, scented soaps, and so forth. Aquinas acknowledges this, but then seems to reduce our delight in non-food odors to a pleasure that's purely utilitarian, which fits with his observation that odors are not said to be beautiful. Um, although I, in English, people do sometimes call odors beautiful. While he acknowledges that humans and other animals delight in certain odors because of their association with food, quote, those desiring food take more pleasure in these odors and those who are full less, end quote, he thinks only humans enjoy odors that are not associated with food. However, he ultimately attributes utility to smelling such smells. He thinks that vapors released during digestion rise to the head and condense, sometimes causing sinus problems, and that the odors of flowers and the like are able to counteract these vapors. Um, there may be aromatherapists who would maintain such a view, and incidentally, I was surprised by the antiquity and ubiquity uh, of um, the ubiquitousness of um, aromatherapy. But anyway, Aquinas ultimately concludes, quote, but that species of odor that's not associated with food, which is delightful in itself, is always useful to health by its nature, end quote. So again, this view fits with the position that the perception of beauty can only be found on the part of senses that are not inseparably tied to identifying things needed to sur for survival and reproduction. Okay, so we know that humans perceive beauty through the senses of sight and hearing. Are animals able to do so? Or is this precluded by their senses being exclusively ordered to utility? So Aquinas, again, in that Summa Contra Gentilis passage, um, quoted earlier, denies that animal senses can be employed in a disinterested way. And again, just to repeat the salient part of the quote, the pleasure, however, brute animals all refer to the things that conserve the body, for they do not delight in sounds, odors, and appearances, except according as they're indicative of food or sex, in respect to which is every pleasure of theirs. And he says that very emphatically also in the De Anima. And a lot of um, evolutionary biologists would agree with Aquinas. Features and behaviors that put an organism at, dis at a disadvantage in the struggle to survive result in inferior reproductive <coughs> success, and the genes that are at the root of such behaviors tend to be eliminated from the gene pool. The animal that spent time smelling or admiring flowers was not using that time to gather resources, avoid predators, or engage in mating, and the genes underlying that, underlying that behavior would thus be eliminated. Indeed, there are fascinating cases where the practical orientation of animal senses make disinterested contemplation for all practical purposes impossible. For example, there are animals that are very good at spotting things when they move, but barely see them when they're stationary. For example, crustaceans, they see next to no detail, next to no detail. But if something moves with their sense of sight, they can very, very readily detect that motion. Things that don't move at all are neither meat nor mate. So there's really no need for them to see them, okay? So when biologists realize that a given species of animal has a form of perception we don't have, they immediately look for the utility of this perception. So for example, it's sort of unusual, but actually a mammal that can see ultraviolet light um, is um, the, ra the reindeer. 
And reindeer are able then to detect lichens, and they can also spot the pee of their predators, and obviously they avoid that, they try to avoid that predator. Okay. A reindeer that was using its ability to see UV light, like looking at the patterns for the, bird, the bees, you know, where the bees land, it, it's not going to live very long, right? It's got to use it for, in order to keep itself alive. And yet, Aquinas also maintains this, and this is a quote from the Summa. The beautiful, however, regards a knowing power, for those things are called beautiful which having been seen please. Whence the beautiful consists in due proportion, for the senses delight in things that are duly proportioned, as in things like to themselves. For the sense is a certain ratio, as is every knowing power." End quote. So senses are composed differently in order to perceive different sensible objects. Obviously, your ears are constructed different than your eyes, right? And even the same senses in different organisms have a different constitution. So obviously, if you're going to perceive UV light, you're going to have to have a different constitution of eye than we do. As a result of the sense's composition, it's better adapted to perceive certain sensible objects than others. For example, the eyes of certain organisms only afford the animal perception of black and white, and the eyes of others only of certain colors and under certain conditions. The intensity of the color and the amount of light need, needed to see color varies from organism to organism. The constitution of the eye also results in common sensibles being more or less detectable. Shape and number are harder to detect when things are moving quickly, but what's quick is relative to the way your vision focus, um, functions. That's why flies get away from us. Apparently, they receive many more images per second, so for them, we're coming at them like in slow mo motion. Um, perception of sensibles that are not well proportioned to the sense are unpleasant. We strain to hear a voice that's muffled. We wince at the sound of fingernails on a blackboard. Um, and are pained by sounds that are too loud or too high, and similarly for animals, whereas it's pleasurable both for us and for them to hear moderate sounds. As Aquinas notes when um, commenting on what Aristotle says about pleasure in the Nicomachean Ethics, quote, and among operations of sense and intellect, the one is most per that is most perfect is the most delightful. That the operation of sense be perfect requires the optimal disposition from the part of both the sense and the object. And therefore, Aristotle adds that then the sense operates perfectly when the operation of the sense, well disposed, is towards the most beautiful, that is the most suitable of all the things that fall under the sense. So if you're going to have pleasure, there has to be an optimal disposition of the organ and then a, 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 the most highly perceptible sensible. Um, and it makes sense, though, that Aquinas substitutes suitable for beautiful, since he does not think that beauty is perceived by all the senses, and he also seems to deny that it's perceived by animals endowed with sight and hearing. If we consider the various proper sensibles, smells, flavors, and so forth, for something to smell like meat, it pretty much has to be meat, and for it to smell like a dog, it pretty much has to be a dog, although I do notice some exceptions. And similarly for flavors, if, if it if it tastes sweet, there's sugar in it or something like sugar. The same colors, however, can be found in a wide variety of things, some of which are useful and harmful to the animal and some of which are not. As to things that are useful and harmful, color does not enhance the edibility of food or increase the danger of the predator. It seems then that animals' apprehension by sight and hearing of proportionate sensibles that belong to what's useful and harmful should provide pleasure independent of the utility or harm of that being. 
Also, those animals that sense things other than what are useful and harmful should be pleased by viewing or hearing these things if these things have colors or make sounds that are proportioned to the animal's sense organs. But do proportionate sensible qualities capture animals' attention? Do they notice that they derive pleasure from such perception? Could an animal admire a colorful fruit before eating it? Do animals pause to take in the beautiful colors of a sunset or flowers? My position is that animals endowed with sight and hearing do enjoy seeing and hearing proportionate sensible qualities, but that this, this pleasure is slight compared to the pleasures associated with the consumption of food and mating, and consequently is rarely lingered over and even more rarely sought as a goal, and that only in a very qualified way, as I'll explain later. I think that chimpanzees can enjoy gazing upon a sunset as a number of very reputable observers claim that they do. They'll sit there and they'll stare at the sunset for like 10 minutes. Um, and the reason I think that this is plausible is because their color vision is basically the same as ours. Both they and we are, are, are trichromats. Aquinas himself says when talking about the sense appetite, which is something we hold in common with animals, quote, the good to which the sense appetite is born is the particular good, which is considered here and now. For even to see the sun is delightful to the eyes. So I'm sure he's not talking about staring at the sun, right? But he's talking about when things are illuminated, it's agreeable to us. Same thing's going to be true of animals. Uh, so long as you're not a bat, right? Because again, it's got to be proportioned to the animal's senses, okay? Um, and as a matter of fact, um, when they did an experiment where they allowed chimpanzees to hold different doors open to, to look at things, um, they could watch these videos, and some of the videos would be in black and white, some of them were fuzzy, some of them were in colors, and, and they were in sharp focus. So the ape has to hold the window open to see the videos. The apes prefer the videos that were in color and in sharp focus. So they enjoy perceptibility, apart from what they're even looking at. The very fact that something's perceptible is desirable to them at some level. And then in another place, um, Aquinas says, quote, and he, then he quotes Dionysius within the quote. It's sort of hard to indicate that, but um, I'll just read the whole passage. Natural love is universally in all things, for as Dionysius says, the beautiful and good are lovable by all. Since each and everything may have connaturality with, with what is suited to it according to its nature. So this isn't a response to an objection, so I'm sure he's not trying to say that rocks love beauty, okay? because um, they're obviously not conscious beings, but he seems more open there to the possibility that higher animals that have sense perception would enjoy a proportionate sensible object. Okay, so color, when well-proportioned to the sense, is a beautiful sensible accident. It's not a beautiful thing in the sense of a substance or artificial thing. Another type of beautiful sensible accident is harmony, balance, symmetry. This falls in the category of the common sensibles or is closely related to them has to do with position, orientation of shapes. Aquinas mentions harmony as, a, uh, as an element of beauty in a lot of places, so I won't bother to quote that for you. But interestingly, perception of harmony or balance appears to be another case where what is sensed is pleasurable because it accords with the constitution of the sense organ. And so it can be enjoyed by any animal that has sight and hearing. Animals, in fact, show a preference for drawings manifesting symmetry and a repetition of pattern. So here's a quote. This is an experiment I'm going to refer to a number of times. It was done by Bernard Wrench, R-E-N-S-C-H. The experimental animals, mammals and birds, were offered for play, that is, without any reward, 
The choice of six pieces of white cardboard with black patterns of various sorts, symmetrical or asymmetrical, with or without rhythmical repetition of the constituent components, with steady or faltering lines, and so forth. The cardboard pieces were arranged in a circle, and the experimenters recorded which pattern the animal first took in its paw or beak. The animals showed preferences for symmetrical and rhythmical patterns, and those with steady rather than faltering lines. And this agrees with the well-known findings of psychologists who study the elements of aesthetic preference in human subjects, end quote. So I drew a couple of these pictures on the board. So the animals will prefer something like this over this, and they'll prefer that over something that's more cha chaotic. Um, another study involves showing rats patterned images on a screen. And so some of the images were chaotic. Imagine, for example, the surface of granite, you know, how it's got little dots, but there's no pattern in it, right? So they show the, the, the rats the image of the granite, and the rats go right back to eating. It's boring. There's nothing there. But they show the rats something that's patterned like a checkerboard. In that case, what happens, because they're monitoring their brains, is their brain waves indicate a state of attentive immobility, and the blood flow to the pleasure center of the brain is increased, suggesting that the rats enjoy looking at a pattern. End quote. So an implausible explanation for animals' preferences for symmetry is proposed by um, scientist Magnus Enquist and Anthony Arak. While some researchers explain animals' preference for symmetry in terms of it allowing the animals to find a suitable mate, as symmetrical individuals tend to be healthy individuals, Enquist and Iraq argue there's a more fundamental cause of animals' preference for symmetry, namely, quote, the need to recognize objects irrespective of their position and orientation in the visual field. So I'm not going to go through their whole experiment, but basically another group of experimenters did similar sorts of experiments, and what the, this other group um, basically showed was that fewer views of bilaterally sym symmetrical objects are needed in order to recognize those objects, regardless of their position. So if a thing's symmetrical, you only have to look at it a few times, and then no matter how it's positioned, you'll be able to recognize it. But if it's not symmetrical, you have to look at it a lot of times before you're able to pick it out. So again, showing there's a kind of harmony between the sense of sight and things that are symmetrical. You recognize more quickly things that are symmetrical. Uh, and then another um, study um, showed that um, infants um, gaze longer at symmetrical faces, and they learn how to recognize them more quickly. It's absolutely amazing. It's also with beautiful faces, too. They can pick out beautiful women over ugly women when they're infants. <laughs> it's like hardwired into us. Anyway, um, so up till now, we've been talking primarily about the beauty of proportion sensibles, namely color and certain common sensibles, and not about the beauty of things, be they natural or artificial, thing meaning like an object or uh, an animal or something like that. These accidents, however, are what render non-representational art beautiful. I'm referring to the decorative arts, which produce things such as beautiful fabrics, such as plaids, and uh, non-representational ceramic work, wrought iron work, these sorts of things. These artworks share in common a recognizable rep repetitive pattern or symmetry of some sort, thus meeting the criterion of harmony. And sometimes they exhibit bright colors as well, if you think of certain plaids. Um, the question is, given that animals can appreciate the beauty of sensibles proportioned to their senses, can they appreciate the beauty of things that have these characteristics? Wrench's experiment indicates a qualified yes. 
While a picture of a semicircle or two parallel lines are not decorative art, some of the other patterns the animals preferred could be considered such. For example, if you saw that, you'd think it was some type of decoration, right? The one on the lower left corner. Um, and the earliest human art we have includes, quote, zigzag and crisscross patterns, nested curves, and parallel lines. So when we're doing paleo, you know, archaeology, whatever, and we see something that has these sorts of designs on it, we say that's art. So if the, the animal's preferring that to that, it does seem to have some, some appreciation of art, which I'm going to qualify in a, in a moment. Now, you might say that if they do have some appreciation of fine art, why don't they produce works of fine art? And there are basically two excuses you can come up with. One is they, uh, they can't manipulate objects very well, most of them. Okay? So they don't have hands or the equivalent. The other is they don't, they don't have time. Okay? They're, they're very busy surviving, so they just don't have time. Um, and as a matter of fact, the, the two couple, the animals that are sometimes put out there as, as artists that I'm going to talk about later on, they have lots of time because one group are apes that we keep alive in captivity, right? They don't have to struggle. And the other group are the bowerbirds. Bowerbirds are very famously put out there as, as artists. And two things are interesting about the bowerbirds. The, the bowerbird, compared to other birds in its area, is a big bird, very aggressive. So it gets food very quickly. Shovel all the other birds aside, pecks them, and it eats, okay? The other thing about the bowerbirds is that in most mating systems with birds, you need both a male and female to keep the chicks alive. No, the, these male bowerbirds, they're just loafers. The female does all the work, so they got loads of time on their hands, okay? So would I say that higher animals in their heart of hearts would like to be art artists or art connoisseurs, but they lack the time and needed dexterity? Hmm. Well, let's look at the two cases where the animal does seem to be producing something so that it will be beautiful. The first case is the, um, that of the chimps who like to paint or draw. So when the chimpanzee Congo's human companion would put a mark on one side of the paper, Congo would often put a mark on the other side of the paper. Now, maybe Congo was just imitating the human and not seeking to produce balance. However, a number of its paintings exhibit a fan structure, the lines radiating from the bottom of the page. And I actually have these pictures if you want to look afterwards. I have all the ape art. You can judge for yourself, okay? <laughs> um, all right. And then actually sometimes, some of them actually show color balance, where they balance the colors. And this, they're not doing it with the human. They're just doing it by themselves. Some of them are actually sort of pretty. Um, and um, in, one, in a class I taught, a student kind of cleverly thought to put a, a work of human art next to one of these works of you know, fan art there. And she was trying to argue if they were different, but I saw them as being kind of similar. You know, the chimp was more childish, a little bit cruder, but perhaps that's more of a commentary on abstract art than on chimp artistry. Anyway, so well, some people try to explain the chimp's interest in painting along the lines of children scribbling on the wall or banging on pots or testing the acoustics of the church, that sort of thing. They're just trying to, they're trying to find out the limits of their agency, how they can change things. And I do think that this is true in some cases. However, some of the, the ape's artworks show elements of balance, both of color and line, and not the purely random scribbling that one would expect if they were simply disrupting the white of the canvas, although they do do a lot of that as well. And again, talent is varied just among humans, you know. Some of these chimps only scribble, but some of them like get into the fan thing and they keep at it. Anyhow, um, so the, the chimps 
preference for symmetry in its artwork, I suppose, shows appreciation of an element of beauty in its work if we take appreciate in the very weak sense of show a mild preference for. The eighth's interest, however, lies in the production of a painting, not in the contemplation of it. Desmond Morris notes how engrossed the animals can become in the activity of a painting. They'll get angry if you try to interrupt them, and sometimes they actually prefer painting to eating, which is like unheard of among apes. Um, and Desmond Morris is trying to say, well, the ape has something specific in mind that it's trying to accomplish, and like a human artist might have. This, however, does not fit with the ape's disinterest in the finished product. None of the many accounts I've read ever mentions the ape goes back and looks at its own artwork. Apes never seek to know what another thinks of its design. They never show another ape its work, expecting that ape to admire it. They don't have a favorite painting, nor do they throw out a painting because it turned out ugly, though sometimes they paint over their works. Um, they don't take suggestion as to how to improve their work. Humans have tried, too. They don't attempt representational art in which all the elements of beauty found in the works they produce are present in a higher degree. Humans do all these things. We create symmetrical patterns for viewing by ourselves and others, and do not simply add a mark to counterbalance another for the momentary pleasure it gives. In addition, we have criteria for judging decorative arts that go beyond the mere perception of symmetry or the lack thereof. We find some symmetrical patterns are boring and monotonous and not beautiful. Others we deem too busy. We take context into account when we judge decorative arts. For example, if you doubt a canvas that just had parallel lines on it, boring. But on a shirt, that might look a lot nicer than a solid color, right? Um, the same thing's true of chaps. Plainly, to answer the question of whether apes appreciate fine art all depends on what you mean by appreciate. So the dictionary gives a lot of different definitions, but if by appreciate one simply means value, then one could say that certain animals appreciate fine art to the extent they spontaneously value one appearance over the other because it momentarily pleases their senses. Because again, the bird would pick that over that. Okay. Or the ape would put the mark here to be symmetrical rather than elsewhere. However, if one understands by appreciate the val value highly, the ape does not. Again, it doesn't even bother to look at its work once completed or to compare its works with others or to try to improve its work. Even less does it appreciate art in the sense of it admiring it for certain qualities that are judged to be suitably found therein, as we do when we say that a pattern is monotonous or too busy, and in general when we assess a work according to some type of standard. The latter two senses of appreciate are plainly the stricter senses of the word. And I think this fits with what Aquinas says about the senses, namely that they judge, but they don't judge their own judgment. The senses recognize what objects are proportioned to themselves, but the senses don't know that they're doing this. Sight recognizes symmetry, bright colors, and so forth, and the sighted animal can delight in the perception thereof. However, the animal cannot reflect on the source of its delight, and thus cannot set for itself perceiving bright colored symmetrical objects as such as a goal, other than as a momentary goal. This is different from the situation where the sense judges that a food tastes or smells good. The animal does not have to reflect on its sense experience to set as a goal the consumption of a good smelling or good tasting thing. It simply has to remember it as a good. It doesn't seek the perception of the thing apart from the thing itself. We, however, can realize when the very act of perception, apart from any interest in consumption, gives us pleasure. We know that things look nicer to us 
when they have various symmetrical decorations and or certain colors. Now turning to the case of the bower birds, um, it's interesting because they do expect others in some sense to appreciate their works. So the males construct and decorate these bowers, and the nest is a separate structure. Eggs are laid there, the female builds it, and so forth. So these, the bowers are only used in the context of mating, and I have some pictures if you want to see them. And the, the bower bird, the male bower bird, spent a lot of time constructing these bowers and then decorating them in various ways. So here's a quote explaining a little bit how they decorate them. Some bower birds not only select objects that seem beautiful to us, but maintain them in an attractive state. They replace faded flowers and decayed fruits with fresh. They adhere to a certain color scheme. A bird using blue flowers will throw away a yellow flower inserted by an experimenter, while a bird using yellow flowers will not tolerate blue ones." End quote. And males have also been observed to reposition ornaments they've put in, kind of like we would reposition um, Christmas tree balls because, oh, they're too clumped together or something like that, so it will pull it out and put it somewhere else where it's more balanced. And this behavior does not appear to be purely instinctual. Rather, initially, the birds are poor at building and decorating, and they become better through practice. And they even appear to learn by watching other birds who are more mature. Now, while I'm not inimical to the idea that bower birds are pleased by the sight of symmetry, as the various birds and mammals and wrenches study appear to be, there are a lot of reasons to question that this is what they're primarily looking to when it comes to their bowers. First, when you read the descriptions of biologists who wax eloquent about the bower bird's artistry, and then you look at the photos of the bowers, one is mightily deceived. They're really not that lovely. And as a matter of fact, they also incorporate garbage in their bowers. As if you look at the photo, they'll pick up a broken green fork and put it in. They'll pick up any sort of garbage. I guess it's pretty for them. Um, okay, so the second reason to think um, that they're not looking at the beauty is it seems to be it's more about the size of the display. So when decorations are evenly spaced out, then it looks bigger, right, than if they're all clumped together. And bower decoration does vary by species, but some species will put piles of um, things in front of the bower that are sorted by color. So again, if you just had a mishmash of things, it wouldn't look that impressive. You have a big heap of orange, a big heap of blue, and so forth. Um, it, it makes a kind of striking display. And also, another thing that suggests that it's really all about quantity is that the male birds rip ornaments off their, their um, competitors' um, bowers. So like if you're a really robust bird, you rip off a lot of ornaments, you have a very well-decorated bower. So maybe the female is really choosing unconsciously in function of the, the, the healthier, more robust bird. Um, still, the difference in how animals find their mates does arouse wonder. So s some animals, they just mate at random, like the first male or female they see, that's the one they go for and that's it. And that a, a male gain access to a female is often based on speed or strength. Um, but in, in certain animals, the male can only gain access to the female through female choice. So it's going to be the physical appearance of the male, some sort of mating display, or these bowers. Um, so, but again, in what sense does the female find the male attractive or the male's bower attractive? Now, one would expect the visual discrimination of females would be attuned to recognizing a mate of its species, because if you mate with the wrong species, then either you have no offspring or the offspring are infertile. And also, you would expect her um, visual sense to be attuned to picking a healthy mate, one that has good genes to ensure the survival of the species. However, many of the same qualities that make animals beautiful 
are the qualities that both make them more identifiable and are indicative of health. Brighter colors and more distinct markings when they're proper to a species make the individual animal more identifiable. Also, the appearance of health in a living thing often coincides with the appearance of beauty. Lack of symmetry and having a dull color often goes hand in hand with disease or deformity due to an accident. So it's hard to know whether an animal is choosing a mate in function of an instinctive recognition of a potential mate being of the right species and or being healthy, as opposed to for aesthetic reasons. And there's yet a third reason why a potential mate's appearance might be attractive, and that's because sight might have as a peroxidant sensible tactile qualities that go with increased sexual pleasure. Such features are obviously of interest to those who view pornography rather than fine art. Um, so that's a third possibility. But with the Bower, it's not the individual itself, so that, that possibility really doesn't uh, apply. It seems here, um, or excuse me, again, Aquinas' view in Summa Contra Gentiles seems to exclude the possibility that animals could have an appreciation of beauty that would lead to mating with an appropriate mate. <coughs> There's no reason, however, to attribute to the bower birds a lesser appreciation of symmetry than was found by, by wrenches birds and uh, mammals, okay? Well, I agree that there's no clear evidence that the female bower bird chooses its mate because of the b beauty of the bower. There really isn't. It's very ambiguous. I don't see it as irrational to surmise that bower birds are more discriminating when it comes to beauty and that the individual bower with the most pleasing appearance captivates the attention of the female as beautiful and as such stimulates the female to mate with its maker. If we set aside the excess confidence with which Wolfgang Welsh espouses the following view, is it otherwise objectionable? Quote, no doubt the perception of male beauty generates excitement and pleasure on the side of the female, but what is the real source of energy for this pleasure? Is its original source the perception of the beautiful? In standard human aesthetics, the pleasure is considered to originate uniquely through the perception of the beautiful. In the realm of animal aesthetics, the fundamental energy source of the pleasure in the beauty, it appears to be, is sexual desire. Delight in beauty obviously arises only in the context of sexual desire. Only when this is active will the beautiful give rise to pleasure. Beauty is a means of raising sexual desire into actual arousal. And then he makes an interesting statement, which I find plausible. That she takes a partner at all is sexually determined but that she chooses precisely this partner is aesthetically determined, end quote. So the bower birds have an ulterior motive in choosing the bird with the, with the beautiful bower that wrenches animals did not have. They're just playing when they're picking out these shapes. The presence of a utilitarian motive argues prima facie against genuine appreciation of beauty. However, is it always the case that the fact that a work is ordered to some useful purpose precludes it from also being appreciated as being beautiful? Seems not. If you think about um, the different artworks in churches that are meant to instruct the faithful, at the same time, they're also beautiful. And to the extent they're beautiful, it actually contributes to the end of instructing the faithful. So accordingly, one might say that the male makes the bower beautiful as a means of attracting female attention and ultimately getting her to mate with them. And if you think about it, it really doesn't seem all that different than with, with human beings, right? Aquinas, Aquinas says, quote, no one begins to love a woman unless he has previously delighted in her beauty. So women who are trying to attract a man, they try to make themselves beautiful, right? 
And then we think about Plato too. Plato also has that ascent of beauty where our interest in beauty is first focused on the body of our lover, of an individual human being, and then eventually we appreciate bodies in general, beautiful bodies in general, and then it gets more spiritual and so forth. So I see certain sim similarities in the thought. Um, Welsh concludes, quote, animal pleasure and beauty is not aesthetic pleasure proper. Rather, it's sexual pleasure occasioned by perceiving beauty. The aesthetic attitude has not yet become free, independent, or purely aesthetic in the strong sense, end quote. So he agrees with Aquinas that true appreciation of beauty requires disinterest in obtaining some good order to survival or reproduction. The beauty of other things never has the same salience for the bower bird that the beauty of the prospective mate has for the very reason that it's not associated with obtaining some good. Yet Welsh, like myself, is willing to ascribe some perception of beauty on the part of the animal, as Aquinas appears to do when he quotes Dionysius. The indifference to beauty outside the situation of mating is, is very plain in the case of the bowerbirds. Because again, as I, I mentioned to you, they don't have any, any excuses. Okay? They have time on their hands. They have the ability to produce something that's beautiful. Do they ever do so? Well, there are, there are times of the year, most of the time of the year, they are trying to mate. Okay? But when the female's raising the chicks, the male, male has time on his hands. He could be making all sorts of other artwork, but no, not interested. Okay? So again, in the sense of appreciating highly the beautiful, it's, it's not there. Um, so Welsh, who initially says that bowerbirds have no aesthetic appreciation outside the context of mating, later backtracks, citing observations such as wrench mate. I think that the rudimentary appreciation of beauty exhibited by wrenches animals can reasonably be seen as the foundation of the more intense interest in it in the context of mating. I find plausible M. Kilpatrick's observation that female preferences are often biased by their sensory systems. Quote, biases in the peripheral and central nervous system are built into every sensory system that females use to find males. Eyes are more sensitive to some colors than others. Ears are more likely to hear louder mating cries than soft ones, end quote. So it's certainly possible that, for example, a male's mating call consisted in screeches jarring to the female's ear and that she'd mate with them just on the basis of the estimative sense. Still, one would expect that the male that produced the less jarring screeches would attract more females. In short, while mate selection based on visual discrimination and auditory as well, is reasonably thought to be based in many cases on things other than beauty, it does seem plausible that the weak preferences that sighted animals have for certain colors and for symmetry would become a factor in mate selection as well. Okay, so what about the third criterion Aquinas gives for beauty, integrity, or perfection? Though I haven't found any studies to back this up, I'd wager that if animals were shown pictures of familiar things, some which would show the animal or whatever it is, or the fruit entire, and the other ones would show a picture of it with parts chopped off, that the animals would show a preference for the entire images. And also, if you, if you recall, although I don't fully understand this, um, both Aristotle and Aquinas associate beauty with a certain size. And it's certainly true that when there's female choice in animals, that they'll go for the bigger bird or the bigger animal. Um, so it seems that animals have some ability to, to appreciate all the components of beauty, albeit in the weakest sense of appreciate. And one might suspect then that they're able to appreciate representational art insofar as the thing it often depicts is, uh, is oftentimes something beautiful. Now this is kind of an aside, but I hope you'll bear with me because I'm hoping maybe you have some answers about this. Um, 
little bit of a tangent, but not too long. Earlier, I distinguished between beautiful, sensible characteristics and beautiful things, and I spoke of decorative art as being a kind of thing, which it certainly is, right? You have a wrought iron fence, it's a thing. But there's a difference between a beautiful pattern as realized in various materials and a beautiful natural substance or a representation of one. In the latter case, is to recognize that a thing is beautiful requires more than the simple perception of harmony, color, and so forth. And so here's a quote from um, the Summa about beauty. Disposition implies a certain order. When something is not said to be disposed to quality except in order to something, if one adds disposed well or badly, which pertains to the notion of habit, it is necessary that ordering to nature is attended to, which is the order of the end. When something is not said to be well or badly disposed according to shape, unless according to an ordering to the nature of a thing, according as it's suitable or not, whence also shapes themselves and passable qualities according as they're considered as suitable or not suitable to the nature of the thing, pertain to habits or dispositions. For shape, according as it suits the nature of the thing, and color pertain to beauty." End quote. So if a human face was a highly visible green, we'd speak of it having a ghastly color. Whereas if the grass had the same green color, we'd find it was a lovely green. We speak of the beautiful blue Adriatic, but blue food in general we find unappetizing. If a dog had the shape of an insect, it would be ugly. An insect that had the shape proper to its species would in that sense be beautiful. Though we might find a certain type of insect ugly to the extent that an individual of that species was an excellent representative of its species, displayed clearly all the colors, shapes, parts, characteristics of its species, we would find it in one sense beautiful, as when we say of an, of an individual of an ugly looking kind of thing, this is a beautiful specimen. And we'll say of an excellent example of a living thing, what a beauty. A question I don't know how to answer is whether such a specimen of an ugly bug is beautiful to the senses or only to the mind. Reason does not change how disproportioned certain things look to us, certain bugs, for example, but is able to grasp in the perception of the singular how well it realizes its nature. But perhaps it was a mistake in the first place to judge the bug as ugly. I would want to say that tigers are beautiful and pigs and cockroaches are not. So in each case, we might recognize that a given individual is a beautiful specimen. I can't wrap my mind around the idea that some cockroaches are beautiful and that there isn't a single species of, of animal where you don't have all the animals or where the, all the animals aren't ugly. Another question I don't know how to answer is whether or not an animal can recognize this kind of beauty at all. Plainly, one has to be endowed with reason in order to form the notion that an individual may more or less fully attain the, the natural perfection of its species. That's kind of obvious. Um, rational beings conceive the notion of nature and that natural beings are supposed to look a certain way. But then we also form universals and representation of the ideal or perfect horse or cockroach against which we judge the individual before us. But how do we form this universal and representation? By looking to singulars. But how do we distinguish the individual that most fully realizes the nature of its species from the average individual? It would seem one would really have to study the creature. If this is so, then few people can actually appreciate the beauty of natural things, which seems sort of strange. It is true that someone who doesn't know horses might think a particular horse is beautiful when in fact it has vices that are apparent to the trained eye of a breeder. And I can't recognize a beautiful specimen of a house fly, despite the hundreds I've tried to kill. Um, 
So it, it seems that an animal's sense is sufficed for recognizing a well-formed individual if indeed animals select their mates on the basis of aesthetic, experience, aesthetic appearance. Interestingly, as I mentioned earlier, human infants stare longer at beautiful women's faces than at ordinary ones, and they couldn't have any sort of reasoned out criteria for beauty. Even when adults perceive certain faces as unattractive, they can't always pinpoint what's wrong with them. So in other words, there, there might be a pre-rational appreciation of the beauty of a thing, and not just of the beauty of sensible ac accidents. I don't know. This appreciation of beautiful things, if it's present in animals, does not extend to beautiful individuals of other species. Certainly animals need to recognize prey, predators, and so forth, and they may likely have innate universals and representation, or what in biology you call a search image, that allows them to do this. But they, they do not need, however, to recognize that the prey or predators are well-formed, formosa being another word for beautiful, to act appropriately. Indeed, learning to recognize what the beauty of these things consisted in would imperil their, their um, survival. So picking up the thread again with art, because obviously, as we were talking about yesterday, representational art doesn't always portray things that are beautiful. Okay? So what's important in order to uh, appreciate representational art is first, you have to know that this represents this other thing, right? And then you also have to understand what the purpose of representational art is, that it's supposed to represent this other thing, okay? Because animals can mash things, but they, what the whole problem with the animal is it doesn't understand that the representational art is supposed to be representing the thing, okay, as we'll see from examples. Because uh, apes can recognize representations. For example, you give them pictures of food and tools, and they'll sort them, food, tool, food, tool, by looking at the picture, okay? Pigeons can even recognize familiar people from strangers by looking at pictures. So they do have some working knowledge of representations. They know, you know, this is a person I've seen before, this isn't, at some level. Um, but what apes don't show evidence of grasping is that the goal of representational art is to be a likeness of the thing it represents, and this can be attained more or less successfully. There are very few instances where ape researchers claim that their animals are producing representational art. I've only come across two groups of researchers who claim that their apes do so. One group claims that the chimpanzee Michael paints still life pictures, and you can look for yourself. Um, of those pictures, and I'm being very generous, only one of them looked anything like the still life model it was looking at. That's the green pepper, okay? But none of Michael's other paintings looked anything like the thing, okay? So like pumpkin does not look anything like a pumpkin. Uh, you have to look at the label to figure out what it is. On the website, they kind of cleverly put next to a painting that the ape entitled Apple Chase. Okay, Apple is the name of the dog. Okay, so Apple Chase. They kind of cleverly put then a headshot of um, Apple, and they really look very similar, but the thing is, is the dog, or excuse me, the ape named the painting Apple Chase. Are there any legs on the dog? No. There's just like a bus. So it's kind of like when you see a whale in the cloud sort of thing, you know? So, so they really don't look um, anything like what the still life is. And the ape does oftentimes pick like the same color, like pumpkin is at least orange. So maybe there's some vague, you know, something going on there. But it really doesn't have the idea that it is trying to represent this thing for the viewing pleasure that it will give. Because again, once they make it, they don't look at them again. 
Um, and it never went back and said, oh, look, the green pepper is really my most successful piece or something like that, you know? All right. Um, so another group of researchers talk about Moja, who's a chimp, her bird drawings, okay? The very first one, the researcher had actually drawn a banana, and then Moja goes and puts the scribble on. You can judge, judge for yourself, again, don't want to bias you. And then signs, because she was one of the linguistically enabled apes, so she signed bird, okay? Now, the problem is it doesn't really look anything like a bird. And the thing is, the researcher never asked, well, where's its head? Where are its eyes? Don't you need to put a tail on this thing, you know? Um, so it, it is pretty much you're seeing what you want to see in this thing. It, it, it doesn't resemble the thing at all. And again, you know, with very young children, and a lot of you have young children, I know, um, they're like, oops, I, I forgot to put the eyes on, or I made the eyes too big. No, the ape, no, it, may, it did what it did, and it just moves on. So it's really not trying to imitate, okay? So animals do learn to use and make tools through imitation. However, to know that a work of imitative art is supposed to look like the thing it's imitating is a universal truth, and observation shows that it escapes the animals. I understand that look like, could admit of, uh, look like can admit of qualifications. I'm not trying to say art is a photograph, and we talked about that a little bit in the, in, uh, in the last session. Um, still, children spontaneously criticize a work of imitative art by saying, that doesn't look like X. Okay, and the question, what is that, indicates like a total failure on the part of the artist, right? <laughs> we can agree with that. Okay, so when I was asking solid Thomas for help for this paper, a common response that I got is that reason is part of the very definition of art, so of course animals cannot appreciate art. And yet, as experience shows in both Socrates and Aristotle note, there are people who lack the art of drawing, drama, and so forth, but nonetheless produce noteworthy works of art. These people had natural talent. And people who have no instruction about art are eager to view artworks. As we come to the Metropolitan Art Gallery and overhear a conversation. Um, if artworks can be produced and appreciated without art, meaning art, reason, that sort of thing, why then would higher animals be unable to do so? After all, they're imitative, and they do learn from representations. You, you might say, well, why isn't it like this? You know, how human beings, we make tools both through art involving reason, abstract principles, and so forth. We can make similar tools just through experience, and, and apes can make tools through experience. Why can't that be the case with fine art? That you, know, you might have human artists who have abstract principles, whatever, guiding their, the production of their art, and others just do it through, through natural talent, as Aristotle suggests might have been true of Homer. And then the apes only do it through experience. Why isn't that possible? Why can't you have that type of parallel? Uh, and also, if you think about it, representational art, first and foremost, is about singulars. They have senses. This is something singular. The, the universal in representation is a singular, okay, in the imagination. Uh, and I can see, I don't have time to develop this, but a lot of people who comment on, on art talk about knowledge by connaturality. Knowledge by connaturality is involved in, in ethical decisions and it bears on the singular, okay? Um, and, and yet, even in the discussion of knowledge by connaturality, which I can't go into, Aquinas says that nonetheless there is some imperfect use of reason there. And he doesn't really specify what that is, but so far as I can see, the minimal use of reason found prior to any formulation of specific canons of art consists in grasping the general notion that imitative art should appear like the thing it's imitating. 
Okay, that is one universal concept you have to have if you're going to be an artist. Uh, again, children very early on will criticize a drawing on the grounds it doesn't look like the thing the artist is trying to draw. In the absence of this universal principle, there is no evaluation or appreciation of representative art, right? If you don't know that, how are you going to judge it as being a good or bad representation? Colors and symmetry present in a representational artwork might catch the animal's eye. But that they view the imitation as good or less good, according as it is true, or true to life or not, is not, not something they show any signs of. Um, and it's not surprising that they do not show a universal grasp of the purpose of representational art, as other evidence shows them incapable of abstract thought. Evidence for the same inability to understand the purpose of representations comes from the observations of animals listening to music that's tailored to them. So some people noticed that the apes were uninterested in our music. They play all kind of classical music, not, not interested. So they decided to listen to the animals' calls and then stylize those calls. So they knew, oh, this is a scared call, this is a, um, a happy call, and so forth. So they, they stylized music for these animals, okay? And the result was that the sad or the scary music made the animals sad or afraid. But they in no way enjoy this music because these emotions are painful emotions. Unlike human beings where we might listen to a really scary soundtrack, you know, for a horror film, it's like, whoa, that's a, such a great soundtrack. Because we can then judge that the emotions evoked were suitably emo evoked. The animals can't do that. They just feel the emotion. They can't see that the representation is good. Um, so, and the reason that fine art can't be produced and appreciated in the strict sense by animals in virtue of their senses, whereas works of the useful arts can be, is because in the case of the useful arts, the animal senses allow it to know, know the goals to be achieved by the products of these arts. So, for example, they make a tool, they put two slotted sticks together to get a grape. They know what the, the end is. They know what a grape is and that they want it, right? Okay. But the thing is, is that in the case of um, art, they don't know the value of perceiving an imitation which is, which is accurate, that it's true to the thing that it's imitating. They, they can't grasp that because you have to re reflect on your very sense perception rather than on some sensible thing that you simply remember. Um, so Aquinas is not wrong to see animals' pleasure as not exceeding the sense level. So he's certainly right about that. All right, so um, I'm going to talk just a tiny bit about literature, and um, I know I'm already over time. At this point, you might say to yourself, well, we can deduce what you're going to say about literature insofar as it represents human action, okay? They're not going to judge it as a representation, and they're not going to have any sort of universal criteria like you'd find in the poetics, right? Okay. But it's sort of interesting, um, just from the point of view of trying to understand differences between us and other animals, to determine whether they have some minimal, non-practical interest in a story insofar as what it imitates. So again, you can look at an imitation as an imitation, or you can simply look at it as a thing, like a beautiful woman, you, or, or the Virgin Mary, you can look as the Virgin Mary, or you can look at it as a painting of her. Okay. So as far as what's imitated, um, some type of action, can apes get interested in what's being imitated? So this raises a question about whether they can follow a plot Okay? And it also raises a question that has to do with um, gratuity in the animal kingdom. Because Aquinas is very focused on the idea that whatever they do, they're doing, they're doing it in a way which is directly um, ordered to survival and reproduction. 
I don't think, again, that's entirely true. I think they, like, again, they do enjoy the sunset, they do enjoy certain shapes, but at, at, at a very rudimentary level, not at a self-reflective level. So here's another example where uh, I think that we find that there is more gratuity. It's like, you know how Aquinas says the lower and the higher meet, I guess, following Dionysus? But it's exactly where to, to cut those joints or indicate those joints. That sometimes I think that his lack of familiarity with animals may, makes them make sharper lines than are, are perhaps actually there. At any rate, chimps um, that are shown short video clips of situations resembling those that they experienced during a medical checkup such as scenes in which a vet, a vet gives another chimp an injection, or a chimp expresses fear at being approached by a vet holding a dart gun. Okay, so they're shown these videos. But then it's interesting, they show them pictures afterwards, and the, the chimp after will point to one of these pictures. And the pictures they show after are like a happy chimp, you know, the equivalent of a chimp smile, and then like a scared chimp or some, a, a chimp disturbed in some other way. And the chimp will watch the video and then will match the correct face, expressing the correct emotion to the video. Okay. Um, and then there's the case of the linguistically trained chimp, Sarah, and this is a quote. She gave evidence of having good representations of actions she'd never done herself, but had watched others doing. For example, lighting a gas heater or plugging in a phonograph. She was shown videotapes on a TV screen of a person shivering by an unlighted heater or a person trying to play an unplugged phonograph. And then she was asked to choose among several photographs depicting appropriate or inappropriate remedial actions. She consistently chose the appropriate solution, a photo of a match or of a plugged-in electric plug, thereby demonstrating not only a good representation of familiar events, but an ability to select a causally relevant segment. In a final experimental twist, Premax showed Sarah a videotape of her favorite keeper vainly trying to reach a bunch of bananas hanging too high from the ceiling. Sarah did not hesitate to choose the photo of the keeper climbing onto a box as the correct choice for this video, end quote. So my question is, does a plot have to be more elaborate than these simple problems? Does the three little pigs, for example, have a plot? You know, it seems like there's a problem there, right? You have a wolf capable of producing a really strong wind, okay? And the solution is you have to build a really sturdy house. And the subsequent problem is it can climb through chimneys. So solution to that is you put a pot of boiling water on the hearth, right? Is that a plot, okay? Or if you think about Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner, um, are, are, are there plots there, okay? Um, so now some researchers made a movie tailored to apes. They actually had humans in chimp suits doing this movie. Okay. Um, and the storyline concerns a young female chimp that, quote, meets and befriends a foreign group of chimps, much as female chimpanzees actually do in the wild, designed to appeal to a primate audience. It depicts social dramas surrounding status, territory, sex, and food, end quote. So what was the chimp viewer's reaction to the film? Quote, Chimps watch the television for minutes at a time, and you can see the pupils of their eyes scanning different parts of the screen. Chimps' mode of viewing is different from ours. They look at the TV and look away, scanning the changing social situation in the rather small viewing space they were in. They are most certainly not following the experimental narrative created for them, but they do tune into certain characters, levels of energy, and activity 
and perhaps to colors and sound. So someone will actually like beat their chest at a certain moment because they see like another ape beating its chest, this sort of thing, okay? So, but my question is, why aren't the apes following the plot? And I think there can be two types of explanations for why they're not following the plot. One, they're not able to follow the plot. A subdivision um, of that would be, well, maybe they just couldn't follow this specific plot. I have a lot of problem with movies, too. Um, and the other sort of reason would be they just don't have an interest in it because it, it affords them no practical advantage. So if they're watching a video of how to, um, I think I didn't mention this, but they actually learn from videos to put slotted sticks together to get a grape. So the ones who've watched the video of another ape doing that, they learn how to do it much more quickly. Okay? So maybe they only watch videos if they, you know, they can get something from it. They get a reward or they, they can solve a problem. Okay. So, but, but what's interesting is they do have interest in something that's like a story that doesn't have any immediate practical application in their lives, and that is in pretending, or something like pretending. Apes have been observed to feed dolls and to make stuffed animals bite, okay? And then one of the more complex instances of animal pretending or something like pretending was there was this one chimp, Vicky, who would pull an imaginary pool toy, like she'd hold her arm down, you know, like she had a string or whatever. And why she even pretends that it got caught, and the experimenter comes and un, you know, pretends they, they undid the string, and then she goes on back pulling this pool toy, you know? Um, so such observations indicate that it's not the case, that apes are devoid in interest in representations or imitations. Um, it seems, then, that their disinterest in stories lies in their inability to follow a plot. I've only come across one instance where an ape researcher claims that the ape is following a story, and I'll read that to you in a little bit. Um, it was suggested to me that maybe animals could not understand complex plots because they have no sense of time, apart from the you know, imminent future, which allows a dog to go get food out of its dish, right? Um, and a complex plot unfolds over a period of time, unlike a simple problem. But it seems to me really hard to show they have no sense of time. They can memorize actions that have to be performed sequentially to solve a problem. And then does a sense of time involve reason? So I, I've never been able to examine that course to see you know, where reason is involved and how. But some claim that animals are unable to plan in the sense of mentally put together a series of steps to um, achieve a goal. Certainly, most, if not all, of animal behavior is readily understandable without attributing this sort of planning to them. Now, chimps, again, they do make tools and they do solve problems, but they're not problems which involve several steps. So, like the classic problem the chimp solves is making the termite tool, so it, its fingers can't fit into the termite mound, but it can remember that it wants those termites, right? It can remember how big the hole is, so it's looking around, oh, twig there. You know, it doesn't randomly pick up objects. It doesn't pick up a rock this big, right? It picks up a twig. Why? Because it's an imagina in its imagination. It holds in memory, right, how big the hole is, and it can imagine then that twig being inserted. So as far as I can see, that just takes imagination. Does it take one picture of before and after? I don't know. Or does it just, or just the, the, just, oh, I see this fits in there. Is that the only picture it needs, or does it also need the before picture? Okay. But at any rate, these are things that it can do in its imagination. But if you think about how humans um, will reason and solve a complex problem, um, the end is the first in intention, the last in execution. We realize that the same thing can be a means relative to one end, but also an end relative to another means. 
So what my question is, I, I haven't made up my mind about this, and I'd be interested in your feedback, is does that take reason to see a thing both as an end and then as a means? Okay. So most of the things that apes do, though, don't seem to require this kind of planning. Um, and again, this, I would think that if you, if you really have a plot in the strict sense that you, you would have to have the sort of end means things, but even that's questionable too, as I'll mention in a moment. So here's an example of the sort of thing they do, and I'm, again, I'm asking, are they planning, are they you know, using something other than their imagination? So these are chimps, um, and this is a quote. Paul watched Bento, whom he normally feared and avoided, eating Paul's favorite food, porous coconut palm. Suddenly, Paul darted out in front of Bento, who chased him. Paul led Bento to a stash of papaya and later crept back to eat Bento's coconut palm leftovers, end quote. So that seems like a pretty clever plan, right? If it was a human, right, you know, I think we would call that a plan. But, you know, and it would be hard to explain Paul's running in front of Bento who he fears is other than an attempt to get Bento away from the coconut palm, which Paul intended to go back to. These state of affairs are not what Paul is presently sensing, namely he's back with the, with the food there and Bento's gone. And so the ape is holding an imagined scene or scenes <coughs> alongside its current perception of the actual scene. Are getting Bento away and keeping Bento away envisaged by Paul as two separate goals? Is the one scene as ordered to the other, or does Paul first imagine getting Bento away? And then while he's running, it's like, oh, well, now what? How am I going to keep him away, right? <laughs> Wasn't a part of the original plan, but now he's got him away. Now he's got to think of something else. So it's simply one picture at a time, one solution at a time. In other words, can animals only imagine from the immediate present forwards, but not backwards, as we do when we speak about the end being the first in apprehension and last in execution? Does it take reason to recognize that the same thing could be both an end with regard to certain actions and a mean with regard to others? Could the ape then follow from one step to another in a simple story, but not see the difficulty surrounding the resolution of a problem that involves several steps, something that creates suspense? So even, again, in human literature, there's, there's a wide range of how suspenseful a story is. So I just look really quickly at the cliff notes of Romeo and Juliet. No, I, I did read it when I was at TC, but it's been a long time. So, so at, at any rate, at any rate, when um, after they get secretly married, then Romeo ends up killing one of Juliet's relatives. But you can't foresee that, right? That's just an event that happens, and now there's a problem with them getting together, okay? But it, 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 it com contrast that with my favorite movie, The Fugitive, okay? So the fugitive, you know what needs to be done. You know that he wants to find his wife's killer who has a mechanical arm, so he's got to find out who out there has mechanical arms, and he has to get access to this database while the police are... So you see all the difficulties. You can work backwards exactly what he has to do, and you for creates tremendous suspense, okay? So, I, so even within what we would consider a plot, I mean, Romeo and Juliet does have a plot, there are, there are different levels as to how much foresight there is in working back there is, okay? All right, so now the story that this ape is participating in, which I think illustrates just kind of the sequential, you can tack a thing on, you can tack a thing on without any sort of foresight, okay? So I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll read part of it. Um, so here, the, the experimenter's name is Mitzi Phillips, and she's dealing with Coco the gorilla. 
Okay, so Mitzi says to Coco, do you want me to tell you a story? Coco, good. Mitzi, what do you want it to be about? Coco, alligator. Mitzi, okay, you help me. Once an alligator was very hungry. I want ice cream, he said. I'll go get some. On his way, he met a what, Coco? Coco, bird. Mitzi, do you want me to come, do you want to come with me to get something to eat? Yes, said the bird, and the bird rode along on the alligator. Where do you ride, Coco? Coco, nose. Oh, Mitzi, so off they went. Soon they met a what? Coco, cat. Mitzi, the cat said, I am. What was the cat? How did the cat feel, Coco? Coco, hungry. Uh, Mitzi, when they got to the store, the man gave the bird bird food and the cat milk. Coco, milk, Coco loved. Uh, Mitzi, so did the cat. And the alligator got all the ice cream he could eat. Coco, no. Mitzi, <laughs> Mitzi, yes, and the alligator was happy. Coco, no, sad. Mitzi, do you want the alligator to be sad? Coco, good, sad. Mitzi, okay, it's your story. So the ice cream man said, I don't give food to alligators. Go away. The alligator was now hungry and sad. Coco, sad, frown, cry, bad alligator. Okay, that's as much as, I, as I'm going to read, but uh, it, um, you know, the beginning part, right, it sort of makes sense. And you can kind of, the ape can form pictures. you got an alligator now, it imagines an a bird on the nose of the alligator, right? I think that's within the, the animal's capabilities, but is there really a plot in this story? That's what, that's what I don't really see. And it, it, this reminds me of what Aristotle says in the Poetics when he was comparing um, literature to, to history. And he says in literature, if it's a good work of literature, that you can't transpose any one piece because it won't make sense because there are causal connections there you're going to disrupt. Whereas in history, oftentimes one event happens after the other without any particular causal connection. And yet we read history, right? So I think the animal can fall like the historical sort of thing, um, but you can't really understand a plot. Although, again, I, I'm not entirely sure that that's true or even why that's true. And then the other thing, too, it's interesting with um, child psychologists when they're um, examining children when they're telling stories, when children first start to tell their own stories. And so the first stories that the children tell, they label chronicles, and they're basically these sort of sequential historical, this happens after that, and that happens after that, and they don't have a plot. And only later do children start telling stories that actually have a plot. Okay, so to conclude this last section, I'm not sure whether it takes reason to follow a plot or to plan in the sense of working backwards in a situation where what is from one perspective is a, is a means and from another perspective is an end. I don't see any compelling evidence that apes can do this. I do think the notion of palazzo or making connections needs to be fine-tuned, as it seems to me in some sense an ape can make connections between what it remembers and what it sees using its imagination. I'm reasonably sure that animals do have interest in things not immediately ordered to survival and reproduction, but again, that they, that they have um, any sort of critical judgment of art or appreciation in the sense that they know that things look nicer with these marks and they, they seek that out actively or even worse or even harder that they would have canons, rational canons by which they judge. That they definitely do not. Thank you.